Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Partner Over Observer, where we study the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he tells Peter that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For more information and resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Father, we love your presence. Lord, last week we talked about the glory of God being the center of the church. And today we just pray, Lord, you be the center of this time. Holy Spirit, you speak. Lord, as we do our best to understand what's been written in your inspired word, we ask that you would be at the absolute center. Be glorified. Lord, our heart's deepest longing is to know you. To know you. Show us your glory. Show us your face. Stir our hearts to serve you. Ring us out for your glory, God. All of my life, ring me out for your glory. Be exalted. Be worshipped. We love you. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've been rereading um, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters over the last week or so. And there's a passage in the Screwtape Letters that I've been thinking about as I got ready to prepare for this sermon. Um, if you've never read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, it's better than any devotional you've got. Um, but it's not a devotional. Um, but it's about, um, it's the letters from a demon named Screwtape to his nephew, also a demon, named Wormwood. And in the Screwtape Letters, um, Screwtape the uncle is advising the nephew Wormwood on how to best handle his assignment to make sure his assignment makes it to hell. Um, And throughout it, C.S. Lewis is speculating about how demons attempt to manipulate humanity. And and it's actually fascinating. You know, C.S. Lewis, every every line of the narrative, there's some big revelation packed in it. Um, But I want to read to you a little chunk of the screw tape letters this morning as we prepare to talk about the church. Um, this this section I'm going to read to you is from the early chapters. And in, in this section, um, Wormwood's assignment is beginning to go to church. He's beginning to flirt with Christianity. And so Screwtape, his uncle, writes to him this. This is Screwtape. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished, sham, gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands and one shabby little book containing corrupt text of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. 
It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side, no matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of these neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Screwtape goes on. I've been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player or the man with squeaky boots is a miser and an extortioner, then your task is much the easier. All then you have to do is to keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thing from occurring even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood, it is. Handle him properly, and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state as long as you can. Your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. Lewis writes from the perspective of the demonic, and he starts with, there is a great ally in the visible church. Remember last week we talked about the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. The distinction that all of our theological forefathers made was that what you see with your eyes is not the true church. The true church are those people who are distinctly in covenant with Jesus, who have been born again, who are passionate about the gospel. That's the church. Lewis says if you can keep his eyes on the the sham gothic erection, Screwtape wrote, says, I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. Screwtape writes, when this new believer thinks church, all he sees is a half-finished Gothic erection, He's handed some old liturgy that no one understands. And when he looks around the pews, he sees his neighbors who he's been avoiding. People with real issues and odd clothes and squeaky boots and big double chins. Screwtape writes, keep him there. Keep him thinking that the church is an unfinished building filled with odd and hypocritical attendees with big double chins. Your one task is to never let your patient catch a glimpse of the true church. To never allow his mind to travel down the road and begin to catch a glimpse of the beautiful, spotless bride who is powerful in the spiritual realm, which causes every demon to tremble and shake. Last week, we talked about the glory of God. 
as the first priority of the true and invisible church. We talked about the fact that when a church slides away from the conviction that their primary goal is to glorify God, that church will begin to use any tactic it finds favorable in order to draw a crowd. But the crowd drawn is not a church because the crowd drawn is not focused on glorifying God. And we decided that based on these scriptural convictions, as we study Jesus's words in Matthew 16, 18, which we'll get to in a moment about building the, the church, we determined that the invisible church we are set about to build first is first concerned with the glory of Jesus and has as its chief builder the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit builds the church. The Holy Spirit is the intention of Jesus to build the church. He does not intend to build the church by the intellect of man, nor by the gifts of men, nor by the, the entertaining personalities of men. He intends to build the church by the people of God submitting to the leading of the Holy Spirit with the intention of glorifying himself. This week, I want to look again at Matthew sixteen eighteen, and we'll continue to explore the idea that Jesus sets out to build the church by sending the Holy Spirit. Remember, we said last week that Jesus did not say, it's better for you that I go. I'll send you a really great pastor. He says, it's better for you that I go. I'll send you the Holy Spirit. The, the paraclete is the Greek word there, which means comforter. Today, I want to read Matthew 16, 18. We're going to read again Jesus saying, I will build my church. And I want to look at Acts 2. Again, the account of the day when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit was poured out upon the people. And we want to ask the question in Acts 2, what was the Spirit's plan? What was the Spirit's intention? What was the Spirit's understanding of the concept called church? And how did the Spirit intend to go about building that concept called church? So let's start in Matthew sixteen eighteen. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Acts 2.42, sorry, we'll, we'll start um, in, 30, what did I say, 38? We'll start in Acts 2.38-47, we're going to pick up as Peter concludes his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day were added about three thousand souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and, and wonder as signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with glass and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, as we talk about the Spirit of God being poured out on the earth with the intent of building the church, our minds rush to Peter's great sermon in Acts chapter 2. 
And we run to the conclusion that what we need is anointed preaching marked with signs and wonders that would cause crowds to bow their knee in awe. And we rush to that conclusion, rightfully so. We do need anointed preaching again. Preaching that calls our community to repentance, to cast themselves fully on Jesus. I was thinking this morning, I'd give all the money in my wallet to hear David Wilkerson preach again. We see in Acts chapter 2, the sign of the outpouring of the Spirit, fire from heaven, and the disciples preaching the gospel in unknown tongues and languages they didn't know. And we conclude, we need signs and wonders. And we conclude correctly. We're not a church that believes that the Holy Spirit has now chosen to remain cool, calm, and collective. We're a church that believes the Holy Spirit was poured out on the earth for the end times with the intent of building the church and preaching the gospel to all four corners of the earth. That the, that the church is filled with the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to the earth and the Holy Spirit intends to use signs, wonders, miracles. But in our context We understand that the Holy Spirit came in power and that the church today needs power again. And we're right. And we do need power again. But we haven't talked much about the fact that on the day of Pentecost, the power of the Spirit being poured out on people birthed something. The Spirit's outpouring produced something. It caused something to spring forth. The Spirit didn't show up with signs and wonders and anoint the preaching of Peter without an intention in mind. The the, the Spirit was doing something. He was birthing something. On that day, the Scripture said, 3,000 people were saved. And the Spirit produced within the community of Jerusalem a sub-community. So within the larger social context of the city of Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit birthed a new sub-community that would now exist within the larger community. The sub-community would have its own sub-culture within the larger culture of Jerusalem. There are a new people with a new identity, with new traditions and new culture, new ideals that will exist within the larger culture of Jerusalem. They were different. They were passionate. And by God, they were attractive. Not physically, necessarily. They had double chins. Some of them had double chins. We decided last week that the Trinity, our triune God, is missionary by nature. So the Father sent the Son. The Son left His home, heaven, and He came to earth, which was not His home, to bring the gospel. And when the Son ascended, He told the disciples, He said, wait here in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so the Son ascended back to heaven, and at His ascension, He sent the Spirit. And so the Spirit is now on mission. The Spirit is a missionary sent to the earth from heaven with the intent of bringing the gospel to the nations. 
This week, I want you to see that one strategy of the Spirit for evangelism is birthing heaven-like communities that are attractive, enticing, and appealing. One strategy of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to the earth is to birth these sub-communities which will be filled with the culture of heaven and to cause the nations to go, what is going on over there? The Spirit did not come to you, cause you to be born again, and then suck you up into heaven. He put heaven in you and in us, and he has caused us to become his great appetizer. Do you ever sit at a restaurant and watch the table next to you as the the waiter brings out a big plate and you think, whatever they're having, that's what I'll have. You ever said that to your waiter? That's the exact intent of the spirit in birthing a church. He intends for the larger community to see the sub-community and say, whatever is going on over there, that's actually what I'm hungering for. We, through the Spirit, will bring heaven-like unity to earth. We bring heaven's joy to earth. Heaven's agape, selfless love to earth. Heaven-like humility to earth. The Spirit births in us, according to Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The very characteristics that are uniquely Spirit-like. He gives to us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The Spirit births those characteristics into the church so that the world begins to taste what God's like. The character of God is produced in the people of God through the Spirit's active presence and ministry. Part of our call is to put on display for the nations of the earth the promises of God concerning the new creation. We are to show heaven to our region and our existence is supposed to make their mouth water. Now I want to read to you a quote from Leslie Newbigin who was um, a prominent theologian who died in 98. This is what he said. He said, I've often stood on the door of a little church with the Christian congregation seated on the ground in the middle and a great circle of Hindus and Muslims standing around. And as I opened the scripture and tried to preach the word of God to them, I have always known that my words would only carry weight, would only be believed if those standing around could recognize as those sitting in the middle that the promises of God were being fulfilled. If they could see this new community in the village represented a new kind of body in which old divisions of caste and education and temperament were being transcended in a new form of brotherhood. If they could not see anything of the kind, they would not be likely to believe. I've always known that my words would only carry weight, would only be believed if those standing around could recognize in those sitting in the middle that the promises of God were being fulfilled. He says that the Hindu and the Muslim should see the promises of God being fulfilled in the church. Promises of peace, promises of unity, promises of life and liberty, promises of joy, promises of wholeness, promises of being delivered of shame and guilt, promise of possessing real eternal hope. And so the local church participates in the Spirit's mission, participates in the Spirit's intention to evangelize the nation, the nations by loving one another really well. 
You cannot be about evangelism and not be about really loving the community of God's people. If the local church does not rid herself of selflessness, class systems, arrogance, she resists the Spirit's full intention for evangelism. Because the church is supposed to be a taste of the culture of heaven. The church is supposed to be the first fruit of the promises of God being fulfilled in the earth. The flavor of our community matters for evangelism. If it tastes bad then our community is left to assume that what we have is empty promises. But if when they taste our culture, they touch heaven-like love and peace and joy, if they touch selflessness, then they could say there must be something to that cross. It's only the cross of Christ that will lead a man to die to his selfless acts. If our culture tastes like heaven, we'll see what the church saw at the conclusion of Acts chapter 2. That yes, thousands came to Jesus at the anointed preaching of Peter, but a systematic day by day winning of their city happened as the church loved each other well. The scripture says that the church was being added to day by day as this new, attractive, spirit-born community was birthed. So first, the scripture said that this new community, the church birth in Acts chapter 2, was devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to hearing the, t- the teaching and they were devoted to practicing the teaching. It seems from the text that the church gathered in two primary functions. That the church gathered to hear the teaching. They attended temple together. They gathered in large corporate settings to hear the teaching of the word. And then the scripture says that they gathered in their homes to break the break bread with one another, and to, to witness the outworking of the word. They gathered in small, intimate settings to experience the words outworking in this new fellowship. They listened to, savored the preaching of God's word, and they lived close enough with one another to spur one another on to obey it. The church that the Spirit birthed at the conclusion of Acts chapter 2 gathered to hear the word corporately and gathered in homes to intimately have fellowship and practice it. This new community had a clear cultural standard. It was the word of God as preached by the apostles. Do you understand what I mean by cultural standard? The word of God, as preached by the apostles, commands us to lay aside all bitterness. And so the new community, this new church, will exist without bitterness because they are committed, devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The apostles' teaching builds the cultural standard. The new community governed itself, governed the culture by the word. 2,000 years later, our community should be governed by the standards presented in the word through the apostles' teaching. The recipe, somebody say recipe, for attractive community is found in the apostles' teaching. If we're not devoted to the apostles' teaching, we're not following the recipe. 
If we're concerned with the glory of God and the building of the invisible church and people really being born again at the power of the Spirit, then we ought to be concerned with God's recipe. What did he want the church to look like? Next, the Spirit's outpouring birthed a community governed by the Word and marked by intimate fellowship. The Scripture says that they met together for the breaking of bread. For communion. Have you ever thought through the fact that communion, what we celebrate at the Lord's table, literally means common union. It's a similar word to community. The Lord's table is a celebration of our common fellowship in Jesus. We are one new man, birthed by the Spirit of God. All caste systems thrown aside. We share intimate fellowship with one another in Jesus. We are totally wrapped up in the person of Christ. And as we share the breaking of bread, we are celebrating our common union. The early church did not consider the corporate gathering in which they heard the apostles' teaching the primary place of fellowship. They didn't quit coming to the corporate gathering because it got too big too quick. The church just went from 120 to 3,000 and over a night. That's a shock to a church. But they were intentional to celebrate intimate fellowship in their homes throughout the week over dinner. They loved each other enough to open up their homes. And that might be the greatest sign of love. To let somebody in your house. It's the signature mark of family. They prepared meals for one another, made plans to have people over. They laughed together, prayed together, mourned with one another as life brought pain and loss. They told stories while others listened. And they listened to the stories of the person sitting across the table who they would have never listened to just two weeks before. They knew one another intimately. And they all felt known. They felt valued. Seen. The effect of sin. Is to cause us to hide. To feel shame. And by concept, by consequence. Sin causes us to project a false sense of self. Do you understand what I mean by projecting a false sense of self? You put on a show. You pretend like you got it all together. And you've never made a mistake in your life. And you have incredible fashion sense. You project what you want to project. That's one of the great dangers of social media is you project exactly what you want to project. In the gospel, I'm allowed to project exactly what I am. In the gospel, I am liberated from shame. I have no need to hide. In the gospel, I can tell my dumb jokes if I want to tell my dumb jokes. I am allowed in Jesus to be exactly how God created me to be and I'm allowed to wear all of my mistakes, I'm allowed to confess my sins to you so that you can encourage me, bring me to a place of accountability, wash me with the water of the word. I am allowed to be loved perfectly, even with my bumps and bruises and warts, because you're not supposed to love me because of my perfection, but you're supposed to love me because of the perfection of Jesus. I am clothed in the garment of Jesus. 
the Spirit births in these people at the end of Acts chapter 2. If you want to be in an Acts church, you need to not skim over this passage. The church births in this, the Spirit births in these people in the end of Acts chapter 2. Real attractive friendships. Deep friendships. Deeper than anything their neighbors have ever, ever known. In the world, our friendships are based on our common hobbies. You like to golf, I like to golf, let's golf. I don't golf, by the way. But in Jesus, the closest friends can come from radically different backgrounds, have no common hobbies, have no common upbringing. But in Jesus, there is fellowship that loves and savors another story. Like people can really be loved and known even though they don't have common experience. In, in the world, according to the conclusion of Acts chapter 2, the, the Jerusalem at large was watching this happen and going, what in the world? Why is that poor man coming into the house of the wealthy and laughing all night, breaking bread and leaving with joy? He should be outside washing the cars. The Holy Spirit causes sinners to long for Jesus by putting on display real intimate fellowship through the church. Heaven will be intimate. In heaven, every person will feel known, seen. In heaven, there will be joy. In heaven, there will be fellowship. In the church, there should be joy. In the church, there should be fellowship. In the church, every member of the church that belongs to Jesus should be known and understood and heard. Even if their skin color is different and they grew up with a different economic class, even if their jokes are dumb, man, we still hear them. These people, at the conclusion of Acts chapter 2, were selling their stuff to help one another as they were in need. It's not socialism, but real generosity. The apostles didn't say, now we're going to take your boat because you don't really need it. And we're going to sell it and give it to that person. It's always easier to sell somebody else's stuff. Okay, that's why everybody, you know, all the young people want socialism because it ain't their stuff. (laughs) It's not socialism. It's real generosity, real heaven like generosity. Where they sell their land sell their property to help a member of the body of Christ who is struggling financially. People voluntarily sacrifice. That's the sign of a true church. Voluntary sacrifice on the behalf of someone else. In our modern church context, we're so disconnected that we're not always even aware of someone else's needs. It's not even always that we're so selfish that we wouldn't sell something to help someone. We don't even know each other well enough to know who's going through what. What if someone in the room today who belongs to Jesus, who Jesus is passionately in love with, who Jesus went to the cross with them on their mind, who who will wear white robes in heaven and be exalted. What if there's a person in the room like that today who is going through the greatest hardship of their life? Would you even know it? We have to come to a place where we love one another enough to really share our lives with one another. And this 
isn't just about wanting everyone to feel warm and fuzzy. It's about displaying heaven to our city. Is our affection towards one another so evident that our larger community recognizes the Jesus likeness of his bride? When you spend time with my wife, you might get some of my dumb jokes coming out of her. When you spend time with Jesus's bride, you ought to touch his affection. The culture of his house, of his home. John 13, 35 By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I was talking to our connect group leaders this week. How serious are we as a church about that text? By this, all people, your city, your family members who don't know Jesus, the people you go to school with, you work with, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The scripture and here, here, the intent of the text. Of course, Jesus has caused us, called us to love all people. But that's not what the text said. It said that they will know you're my disciples because you love one another. That within the church, there is to be a unique, selfless, intimate fellowship that's beyond anything anyone else has ever seen. How serious are we about this text? Our love for one another or lack of love for one another is a gospel issue. Take a moment to ponder that. How well do I really love the people I go to church with? If you had to give yourself a grade, grade yourself. Isn't that doesn't always stink when the Holy Spirit starts taking you there. Grade yourself. Are we known to be true Jesus followers because of our deep love for one another? Then the scripture says that the Lord added people to that church Daily, day by day. What the Spirit birthed in Acts was an evangelistic people that proclaimed the word in power, anointed by the Spirit. They were marked by signs and wonders, but the real meat of their attractiveness was in their faithfulness to live out the word in their community. Because to proclaim the gospel would set you free of sin. The gospel would liberate you of shame. The gospel would cause you to be born into one body, to be one new man. To proclaim that with your mouth and not live that with your life is shallow. The church gets it wrong when we say on one hand, what we need to do is quit doing evangelism and just love each other really well. That's how the church slips into a social justice thing. The church also gets it wrong when the church says, what we need to do is just preach more and then ignore each other and never display the kingdom. We have to do both. I preach the gospel under the anointing of God. Pray for the sick and live the gospel. Live love, joy, peace. You realize that the Holy Ghost gives us gifts of the Spirit. He brings us the power of the Spirit and He gives us fruit of the Spirit. I want all that the Spirit has to bring to me. And if we want the Spirit to build the invisible church, we'll say all that you have to bring, Holy Spirit. The Lord added to the people day by day. Everything humanity has ever known up to this point is selfish, survival of the fittest, walk on your neighbor in order to be exalted. But these people are totally different. The rich man shares his home with the poor man. All people feel accepted, valued, welcome. 
There's no spirit of competition. The women love one another rather than tearing one another apart with gossip and slander. The men serve one another rather than competing and intimidating. Their city thinks this is different. Jerusalem says this feels like heaven. These people must have something that we don't have. They may be strange. Some may even have squeaky boots and double chins. But by God, they're free from the competitive rat race of society. They are not trying to earn God's favor, but they're living as if they already have it. They're not trying to work their way out of guilt, but they're living in perfect peace and joy and union with God. They have friendships that are deeper than anything we've ever seen. They are cared for. They are fulfilled. And this is the Spirit of God building the church. He's producing in them His own nature. And as they bear that fruit in the context of community, the city surrounding them perks up and says, I'll have whatever it is they're having. I'll have whatever it is they're having. So I'm going to close worship team. If somebody from the worship team would come for me. Jesus says, I will build my church, cleansed by my blood, governed by my word, made alive in my spirit, and they will be marked by selflessness. Selflessness. We've talked a lot the last couple weeks about... um, the idea of trying to build the church and trying to see more people come to know Jesus and trying to do outreach and really love our community. And we've talked about the fact that as we grow, we've also got to grow deeper in intimacy and fellowship and in discipleship. Because if we're, if we're not discipling people that we're reaching, then what are we really doing anyway? If it's about the glory of God, then we've got to keep trying to reach people with the gospel. But as we're reaching with the gospel, we've got to be digging deeper in the spirit and loving and discipling. And if we reach people who begin to make this their church home, but we don't even know their name, much less if they're going through a crisis or if they've ever been discipled, then we're not really existing for the glory of God. And so as a church, we've committed ourselves to the corporate gathering, to worshiping together, to hearing the teaching of the word. But we understand as a church that church doesn't just happen on Sunday morning. That in Acts chapter 2, they gathered together to hear the apostles' teaching, but they also lived their lives together in small, intimate settings, week in and week out. And I want to challenge your understanding of church this morning. Do you take part in a life-giving community that's intimate, alive, and selfless? Do you love and care for people who are totally unlike you? Do your neighbors wonder what's going on at your house and why are you always laughing into the night? Does your life and love for the church make the gospel attractive to your community, to your neighbors, to your family members, to your co-workers? Or... Is there a chance that someone in your church is going through the worst crisis of their life and you know nothing about it? Or is it possible that someone you will spend eternity with, who is a co-heir of the kingdom, 
who Jesus shed his precious blood on behalf. Someone who you call a brother and sister in Christ. Someone who belongs to Jesus, who Jesus loves passionately. Is it possible that that person may sit behind you week after week feeling totally lonely, totally tired, totally exhausted and unseen? Is it possible that there are believers around you who are desperate to learn? New believers who just gave their life to Jesus over the last month or two months. Is it possible that there's a new believer in our body desperate to learn, desperate to grow, desperate to be discipled, for someone to talk to and ask questions to? Is it possible that that person may be sitting in our midst, scratching their head, going, what in the world? I know life is busy. And I know you're juggling work life and family life and spiritual life. And if you're like me, you spend half your time trying not to get fat again. I get it. I'm asking you to consider allowing your understanding of church to step a little bit deeper. To continue to be committed to the power of the Spirit, the anointed preaching of the Word, to continue to pray for the sick and and operate in deliverance ministry. I'm asking you to do all of that. But at the same time, I'm asking you to display heaven-like community for our community. I'm asking if you'll dedicate one night a week, one lunch, one breakfast a week, to gather together with the church, look somebody in the eye, hear how their life is going, really try to love someone with pastoral love and care. I'm asking you to spend time in the Word together, to spend time serving our community together, doing prison ministry together, to have some real face-to-face time with another believer to know them. So you can be sure that there are people in our church who feel known. As we close, I want to read to you Leslie Newbegin's quote again as he preached the gospel to Muslims and Hindus with Christians sitting in the middle. As I opened the scripture and tried to preach the word of God to them, I've always known that my words would only carry weight, would only be believed if those standing around could recognize in those sitting in the middle that the promises of God were being fulfilled. If they could see this new community in the village represented a new kind of body in which old divisions of caste and education and temperament were being transcended in a new form of brotherhood. If they could not see anything of the kind, they would not be likely to believe. Are we attractive? Has the spirit really birthed something here? Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.